Hello and welcome to episode 16 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogy's weekly dose of bombast in a podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Neelachlan. The pollen clouds that are everywhere here in the Northern Hemisphere are temporarily being rained down and kind of tamped down into a green slurry. And that's great news, but it keeps me indoors. So in a way, that's bad because it is pretty outside. But on the upside, it keeps me indoors so that I can record and be here with you. So bad news made into good. And here we are getting ready to work. First, I wanted to extend a big thank you to those who have joined the podcast's Facebook group. I hope many more of you will join us because we have our first group project in place. And as many more people join, we can start to work together to help each other with our research in this particular project. I think it's very cool. The idea didn't come from me. It came from a member. Join the group and you can find out more about the project and you can participate. So there's a teaser for you. The latest notice from the Department of Humblebrag is so awesome that I hardly know how to say it. I got my first piece of hate mail. I feel like I have really and truly arrived. I must be doing something right if I annoyed a Jeffrey that much. Score! As for download counts, now that we've cracked 2,000, I'll just be updating y'all as we cracked each new 1,000 mark together. And I do mean together. These humble brags are thank yous. And I hope you know that. If it weren't for y'all, your emails, your messages on Facebook and Twitter, your Patreon support, your ideas, and now you joining the Facebook group, I wouldn't be doing this. You really, truly make this fun for me, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love teaching, but you really make teaching fun. Now buckle up. This week, we are working. Last week, we took a look at shrubbing, or the act of going out completely sideways on a generation, then downwards on each family member's marriages and children, before going backwards, generation by generation, to build a shrub rather than just a tree, thereby gleaning every possible bit of information from every possible record for every set of lineal parents grandparents, and so forth. Some folks told me after they listened that they were surprised that anybody would do the work any other way, to which I said, I know, right? It's bonkers that anyone would do otherwise. But I promise you, many people are taught to do the minimum, and they miss out on a ton of data and relatives. Go figure. Stacy Stanley, a listener and supporter and now a ringleader of the From Paper to People Facebook group, made me laugh out loud when she posted in the group that she read info about last week's episode about shrubbing and immediately went into her tree and started doing cleanup or scrubbing. And yes, that gave me the idea for this episode and a few others to come. So today is about hygieneology, specifically about correct use of the federal census in order to avoid adding duplicates to your individual tree and making a mess. I assure you that years into it, I am still cleaning up messes in my own tree that I made before I had a system in place for census addition, and I expect to be doing so 
for quite a while to come. I do my best to start new trees error-free and to maintain them that way by putting to use all of the errors I've made in my own personal work and the lessons that those errors have taught me. But first, let's backtrack for a moment. What does a federal census record look like? Where does it come from? How many of them are there? And how do they work on screen in Ancestry? Hint, they don't come from a stork. The creation of a digitized searchable census document is a multi-step process. There are many ways that documents become digitized through state archives, libraries, or GenWeb projects, but frankly, I don't know much about those. I'll just discuss what I know of the process concerning census records at FamilySearch. If I'm wrong or I leave something out, please contact me with corrections and updates, and I'll do an episode on that, fully crediting you for your contribution, and I'd really be obliged for that information. So quick background. Did you know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints became deeply involved in filming and later scanning documents from American states and other countries in the early 1960s. We wanted to preserve documents for our own family history work to be sure, but in exchange, the state and federal governments who allowed us to film and scan received permanent copies of precious records that would never decay or be destroyed in wars or natural disasters. So when genealogists complain on Twitter about those awful Mormons, blah, blah, blah. I hope that they and you will remember that we actually do some pretty cool stuff. Now let's talk about what's going to happen with the 1950 census as an example in anticipation of its full release to researchers in April of 2022. I had a very nice chat with Sister Robinson in indexing at FamilySearch, and she filled in some blanks. First, a federal census record started out as a page in a giant book in 1950. As managed by each state, a census worker showed up at your ancestor's door in 1950, asked questions, and filled in the data that your ancestor provided, then went to the next home and did the same again. Fast forward in the next few years here, as each state releases its 1950 census records to FamilySearch, each page of that census book will be scanned by an LDS family history worker. Each scanned file will be a graphics file like a detailed photograph of the census page. But of course, because it's a photograph, it's not going to be searchable. It's just going to be a picture. Next, an assigned LDS worker will create a simple data input screen for each state and territory involved in the 1950 census, accounting for all fields that will be indexed. Now, this is important. This decision, what to index, is made at the state level. So FamilySearch has to make up to 53 separate data screens and databases, depending on whether or not any states decide to index identical fields to one another. That includes all 50 states, plus Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and Guam, because all of them were included in the census. Not all fields that exist on the page of the census will be indexed. That's why it's important that when using a census record, you examine the original as well as the data extracted by an indexer. There are hidden goodies. Sometime in early 2021, 
Batches of the 1950 census will be released to the public through FamilySearch.org for digitization or indexing. Next, a volunteer indexer, and you can be one of those too, we'll discuss that in a future episode, goes to FamilySearch, signs in, goes through a small on-site training, and then starts indexing, entering data from a packet of individual graphic pages into a data screen in a session. And as you type this data in to these fields, you turn it into something that is searchable. It goes from being just a picture to being actual words that somebody can search for. So that's the point of this digitization or indexing process. When the indexer finishes, he or she saves the data to FamilySearch, and two separate arbitrators check the correctness of the indexer's work. Once the work passes, it is released to researchers online. And of course, in the case of the census, the entire block that is the census itself will be released all at once. Federal law requires that each census be released no less than 72 years after its collection. So the most recent census data available to researchers right now is the 1940. It was released in April of 2012. This allows an average lifetime to pass before researchers can get their hands on potentially sensitive data about aging, living persons. When you're adding the census to your tree in Ancestry, things can get messy. So that's a whole other level of stuff. I've developed names for the two ways that Ancestry adds census records or populates data to your tree. Minimally populating and maximally populating. Usually, you will find a census record as a green leaf hint on your tree, though sometimes you'll find it with a spyglass search when you're actually looking. Either way, you'll find it under one person's name. In later censuses, Ancestry adds all family members' data over into your tree at once. That's what I call maximally populating. But in earlier census records, Ancestry only adds the data over for the person under whose name you are searching and examining the record. I call that minimally populating. Now, this is going to get a little technical and you can listen to it once, but honestly, you might actually want to sit down and look at Ancestry and listen to this again and see what's going on on the screen because I'm going to describe what the screen looks like. It's not a great way to do it when you're only doing it with audio, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> Minimally populating refers to Ancestry populating the data into your tree from the record that you're considering. It has nothing to do with the word population as it's used in reference to the number of people in a place. It's a verb, not a noun. The phrase means that Ancestry is adding over the minimum data possible, in the case of a census record, just one person's data, even though there are multiple family members shown in the family group on the census page and in the indexed record. The term minimally populating census records pertains to 1790 to 1860. 1790 to 1840 census records show only the head of household by name. Over time, the census added other categories, including males and females by age group, but no names were provided, just numbers of persons in the categories. We'll discuss how to build the family out with those in another episode. But why, why, why would Ancestry be so cruel? Why would they make us do all of that manual work? Well, 1850 showed 
all household members by name for the first time, but no family relationships were shown or requested. The same is true of 1860 and 1870. A person's role in the household or family wasn't recorded by the Census Bureau until 1880. If there's a husband and a wife, 1850 to 1870 censuses seem to show husband, then wife, then children in descending order of age. But then again, what if the head of household were widowed and the woman's name beneath his, with the same surname, belonged to his unmarried sister who was helping out with the childcare and everything? What if some of the kids in the house were his nieces and nephews? What if they were fictives, cousins, or even friends' kids given the head's surname by the census taker just for that moment? If that were true, it would be kind of mismanagement of data or irresponsible for ancestry to make assumptions about that kind of information. And I've seen all of those kinds of things there before, as I'm sure many of you have too. Since the family relationships aren't requested by the census takers, and they're not stated in 1850, 1860, and 1870 in the records themselves, Ancestry doesn't provide them for 1850 or 1860. The way that Ancestry handles 1870 is changing, but we'll get there in a minute. And frankly, I'm finding it a little controversial. So I don't know. We'll see what you think about that. Nevertheless, there is a way to handle the record, and this is how I do it. When faced with a minimally populating census, you first need to make sure that you have time and patience to take it on. Honestly, if I only have a few minutes or I'm hungry and I'm faced with the 1850 or 1860 census, I take that as a cue to have a break or have a snack. Depending on family size, it can take up to 20 minutes, even 30 minutes to get the data entered, and I want to be sure that I get it right. I work on minimally populating census records by opening a second tab in my browser, going into Ancestry in that tab, and opening the main page for the person to whom I'm adding the census record, so I can flip back and forth between the record in one tab and the tree in the other. This way, I can add new people if I need to using that second tab, and then I can work the record in the first tab. This is high genealogy. It's how I keep it clean. I make sure that there is only one version of every person in each generation. With the main page for a given person open in a second tab, I can add siblings and parents in anticipation of attaching the census record to them from the first tab. So let's say that you've pulled up the 1860 census for Charles Schmidt, a nine-year-old boy. You're sure it's the right record for the guy in your tree? You have the view record layout in front of you for the 1860 census. You can see all of the index data for names, ages, and genders typed out in your first tab. The most important thing you want to do is open a second tab in your browser, open Ancestry, and open up Charles Schmidt's Ancestry page. Then you add all of the people in the record to Charles Schmidt's Ancestry page in that second tab, one by one, including all of the details. Assume for the time being, since it's 1860 and we can't be absolutely sure, that we do have a family of father, mother, and children. Add each of the people who appear in the census record but who are not already in the tree, 
by typing them in carefully. Get their roles right. I made a mistake on this just last night and I lost an hour's work. From this record, Charles is gaining two parents and all of the siblings listed in this census. If you write it out and you do the math, you should have four columns of info for yourself on a little pad to the side, which is really, really helpful. I like to do it that way. Name, age, gender, birth year. In this case, you'll have Charles's dad, N.L. Schmidt, age 38, male, born about 1822, Charles's mom, Henrietta Schmidt, age 34, female, born about 1826, Charles's sister, Catherine Schmidt, age 7, female, born about 1853, Charles's other sister, Anna Schmidt, age 3, female, born about 1857, and Charles's brother, Jake Schmidt, age 1 12th, which means one month, male. And if you check at the top of the census, you'll see it was taken in July. So this means about June of 1860. Once you've entered all of the family names in tab two, along with the dates, the birth dates, the birth years, go back to the first tab and save the 1860 census record just to Charles. Make sure you're looking at the record from Charles's point of view. If you're not, click on Charles's name in the view record setting, then click on save, save to someone in your tree, and type Charles's name into the field in the pop-up box. His name will drop down as a choice and his birth date will show so that you can be sure that you have the right Charles. That's why we did the math on everybody and inserted birth dates to make sure that the record is added to the right person each time. Then select the name and click the orange attach button and the two column layout will come up. On the left, you'll see data from the record. On the right, data from your tree. Keep the best data because that's what you're going for, best evidence. But note, it will only add Charles's data it's minimally populating. As soon as it's done adding to Charles, you'll see a little window in the lower right of the screen. It'll kind of fly up and it'll tell you that Ancestry is adding the record and it's done. This is where I play a little game with myself because, you know, it can get a little boring. I click as fast as I can on the record's name in that little window, in this case, the 1860 census. And when you click on that, it takes you right back to the record and back to that view record place. It's high genealogy. So I go from top to bottom of this list of people showing in this family group to make sure that I don't miss anybody. Starting with the first person listed in this record, in this case, it's Charles's dad, NL, add the record by clicking on NL's name. Then click the green save button, then click save to someone in your record, then start typing in NL Schmidt, whom you've added to the tree using that second browser tab. His name and birth year will show in the drop-down menu. Make sure you've got the right guy, then click on that name, and his information will come up in the two-column screen. Add his record the same way you did with Charles, and follow the same procedure until you've added the record to everyone in the family group as shown on the census. It's a lot of work. <laughs> you see why I call it minimally populating? And if you're in a bad mood, seriously, set it aside or take a break. It'll give you 
a real freak out if you don't. And I'll give you a good meditation to do in an episode in the future to help you with these moments of freak out because the pain is real and you really want to do this properly. Now, the more fun version of census, maximally populating census, this is a phrase that I use to indicate that Ancestry is going to do a lot of the work for you. It's going to add all persons listed as members of the family you're examining in a census record over into your tree all at once. This kind of census record automatically adds parents, spouses, in-laws, and children of the person that you're looking at. And that is just beautiful. The rest you have to add as you would for a minimally populating census record. And by that, I mean, there could be um, sisters-in-law, brothers-in-law, and things like that, um, that wouldn't necessarily be directly connected. They would be connected to the person that you're considering only they would be connected to the, the the spouse of the person you're considering. And so you would be you wouldn't be able to connect them directly. You see what I'm saying? Or it would be um, a grandparent. And so it wouldn't necessarily, I don't know, the in-law thing can be a problem. Or you might have to figure out cousins and who's related to who. So it can get a little sticky. The data is all there, but you kind of have to work it a little bit harder um, and more like it's minimally populating if it's not one of those direct sorts of relationships. Until recently, it pertained to 1880 to 1940 inclusive, except for 1890, of course, because that burned in a giant fire. But increasingly, the 1870 census is being edited by Ancestry to include inferred family relationships. Now, I said that this is a little bit controversial, and this is kind of why. Um, this improved 1870 census comes with a big caveat. It may populate to your tree fully, which is great, but you have to be careful not to believe the inferred relationships blindly. For instance, I found an inferred daughter in a household, an adult daughter and an adult son uh, with parents who were of middle age two days ago in a census record that I looked at that was an 1870 census. But I had done prior work in earlier census records in minimally populating to establish all of the siblings in that family. And it showed that this could not be a daughter in that family. There was absolutely no way. But a few minutes searching proved that she was in fact a daughter-in-law. She was married to the son, the adult son in that household. So it took a little thinking, it took a little working, I had to research the son in order to find his wife's name in order to establish who she was. So these inferred relationships, I don't know, they take a little extra work, but they can be helpful to the more experienced. They can wreak havoc if you're not being cautious or if you don't know the tree that you're working very well either. So it's a double-edged sword. Basically, it's a lot like working the 1860 or the 1850. You can take those relationships with a grain of salt and be prepared to have them disproven 
as literal parent-child or spousal relationships in favor of more complex relationships by marriage, like I found, or cousinships or other kinds of familial ties. But future records will tell and we'll see if this ends up being a good process or not. The maximally populating census records that are the 1880 to 1940 inclusive, they take about three to five minutes on average to add. I love them. I love them. You don't need a second browser tab to add them. Here you just have to check for prior existence of each person in your tree using the not a new person link on the left hand side of Ancestry's two column layout for each person included in the record. And you really have to be scrupulous about using this little function. It's very easy to overlook. When I pull up a maximally populating census for a person, let's say it's Charles Schmidt again, only it's 1920, and he's an adult with a wife and five children, I say yes, and Ancestry gives me the same two-column layout as before, census on the left, tree on the right, but this time it doesn't just give me Charles's info. It gives me all of the people in the 1920 census that shows as family for him, and it goes down the left-hand side of the screen. Ancestry may or may not pull up people from history on the right to parallel each person listed on the left-hand side of the screen. This is where you have to be precise. For each person on the left of the screen, it's a good idea to get in the habit of clicking on the phrase, not a new person that's written in white on a dusky olive green field at the top of each person's information box. It's directly to the right of the person's name, and if the person is new to the tree or seems to be, it'll be under a brighter green box with the white words new person inside. Click on that and Ancestry will bring up a list of all persons corresponding to the theoretically new person's role in the family. For a wife, it will bring up all wives, or for a child, it will bring up all children in the tree so far. If the person is already in the tree, tick the round radio button next to the person's name, and the record will be aligned with the person in your tree. If you don't do this, the world will end. Well, not really. But if you don't do this and you add a duplicate to your tree, you'll just have to clean it up later. And if you're LDS and using Ancestry to make a well-sourced tree to clean up errors in family search, it's really, really important that you tend to this as you add records. Taking a moment's care now will save you time and effort and frankly, boredom later. Fixing errors is not fun. Fixing errors is boring. Once you have people either aligned correctly or you know that you're adding new people, all you have to do is tick the add box in the upper left corner of each person's info on the left side of the screen, then save to tree, and you've added a data-rich record to your work. Do this with every census, every record, every edition. Otherwise, you'll have multiples of people in Ancestry, and you'll have to merge them. Now, duplicates happen. It's no horrendous thing, but if you're careful, you won't have to waste time with this. This is partly how duplicates show up in family search. So seriously, check on not a new person every time you add a single person from within a maximally populating census record. No, seriously, every time. Well, 
there wasn't enough time to get to all the high genealogy I had in mind, so I guess there are a few more episodes of that coming up. You might want to listen to this one in front of your tree a few more times, you know, like I said, because if you're new to Ancestry, you need to see on screen what it is that I'm talking about. I hope that this is helpful for you. I hope that this is helpful for everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you podcast and you want original theme music like mine, email my good friend Kurt Brady at curtisbrady at yahoo.com. Tell him I sent you. Rock, blues, country, folk, jazz, you name it, he can do it. If you have a concept or a music sample, he can work with you. He writes, plays, and records. We have a new place to hang out. As I said earlier, meet me at facebook.com slash groups slash from paper to people. It's a place to ask and answer questions, meet others, and build a working research community. Go there for exclusive tips, links, and content. I hope it'll be fun. Otherwise, I'm in the usual places at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com, though that may be under some construction over the next few weeks, and on my Facebook page at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. Follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive and on Instagram at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. If you have an idea or a question for the mailbag, you can contact me in the Facebook group or at Ancestors Alive Genealogy at gmail.com. And please, if you find value in this podcast, you can support me in two ways. Rate and review it on iTunes and become a sustaining financial supporter on Patreon from $1 to $25 per month, including prizes, or a one-time supporter using PayPal. I need those positive reviews and that financial support to keep this virtual classroom going. Have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Keep it clean. And above all, expect surprises.